5. Game, and until we of the Pacific majority contrive some satisfactory organization to watch the war makers we shall never end war, any more than a country can end crime and robbery without a police. Specialist must watch specialist in either case. Mere expressions of a virtuous abhorrence of war will never end war until the crack of doom. The people who actually want war are perhaps never at any time very numerous. Most people sometimes want war, and a few people always want war. It is these last who are, so to speak, the living nucleus of the war creature that we want to destroy. That liking for an effective smash which gleamed out in me for a moment when I heard of the naval guns is with them a dominating motive. It is not outweighed and overcome in them as it is in me by the sense of waste, and by pity and horror and by love for men who can do brave deeds and yet weep bitterly for misery and the deaths of good friends. These war lovers are creatures of a simpler constitution, and they seem capable of an ampler hate. You will discover, if you talk to them skillfully, that they hold that war in nobles, and that when they say in nobles they mean that it is destructive to the ten thousand things in life that they do not enjoy or understand or tolerate things that fill them, therefore, with envy and perplexity such things as pleasure, beauty, delicacy, leisure, in the cant of modern talk you will find them call everything that is not crude and forcible in life, degenerate, but back to the very earliest writings, in the most bloodthirsty outpourings of the Hebrew prophets, for example, you will find that at the base of the warrior spirit is hate for more complicated, for more refined, for more beautiful and happier living. The military peoples of the world had almost always been harsh and rather stupid peoples, full of a virtuous indignation of all they did not understand. The modern Prussian goes to a war today with as supreme a sense of moral superiority as the Arabs when they swept down upon Egypt and North Africa. The burning of the Library of Alexandria remains forever the symbol of the triumph of a militarist culture over civilization. This easy belief of the dull and violent that war, braces, comes out of a real instinct of self-preservation against the subtler tests of peace. This type of person will keep on with war if it can. It is to politics what the criminal type is to social order, it will be resentful and hostile to every attempt to fix up a pacific order in the world. This heavy envy which is the dominant characteristic of the pro-military type is by no means confined to it. More or less it is in all of us. In England one finds it far less frequently in professional soldiers than among sedentary learned men. In Germany, too, the more uncompromising and ferocious pro-militarism is to be found in the frock coats of the professors. Just at present England is full of virtuous reprehension of German military professors, but there is really no monopoly of such in Germany, and before Germany England produced some of the most perfect specimens of aggressive militarist conceivable. To read Fraud upon Ireland or Carlisle upon the Franco-German war is to savor this hate-dripping temperament in its perfection. Much of this literary bellicosity is pathological. Men overmuch in studies and universities get ill in their livers and sluggish in their circulations. They suffer from shyness, from a persuasion of excessive and neglected merit, old maid's melancholy, and a detestation of all the levities of life. And their suffering finds its vent in ferocious thoughts, a vigorous daily bath. A complete stoppage of wine, beer, spirits, and tobacco, and two hours of hockey in the afternoon would probably make decently tolerant men of all these fermenting professional militarists. Such a regimen would certainly have been the salvation of both Froude and Carlyle. It would probably have saved the world from the vituperation of the Hebrew prophets those models for infinite mischief. The extremist cases pass to the average case through insensible degrees. We are all probably, as a species a little too prone to intolerance, 
and if we do in all sincerity mean to end war in the world we must prepare ourselves for considerable exercises in restraint when strange people look, behave, believe, and live in a manner different from our own. The minority of permanently bitter souls who want to see objectionable cities burning and men fleeing and dying form the real strength in our occasional complicities. The world has had its latest object lesson in the German abuse of English and French as degenerates, of the Russians as Mongol hordes, of the Japanese as yellow savages. But it is not only Germans who let themselves slip into national vanity and these ugly hostilities to unfamiliar life. The first line of attack against war must be an attack upon self-righteousness and intolerance. These things are the germ of uncompromising and incurable militarism everywhere. Now, the attack upon self-righteousness and intolerance and the stern, self-satisfied militarism that arises naturally out of these things is to be made in a number of ways. The first is a sedulous propaganda of the truth about war, a steadfast resolve to keep the pain of warfare alive in the nerves of the careless to keep the stench of war under the else indifferent nose. It is only in the study of the gloomily megalomaniac historian that aggressive war becomes a large and glorious thing. In reality it is a filthy outrage upon life. An idiot smashing of the furniture of homes. A mangling. A malignant mischief. A scalding of stokers. A disemboweling of diners. A raping of caught women by drunken soldiers. By book and pamphlet. By picture and cinematograph film. The pacifist must organize wisdom in these matters, and not only indignation and distress must come to this task. The stern, and compromising militarist will not be moved from his determinations by our horror and hostility. These things will but brace him. He has a more vulnerable side. The ultimate lethal weapon for every form of stupidity is ridicule, and against the high silliness of the militarist it is particularly effective. It is the laughter of wholesome men that will finally end war. The stern, Strong, silent man will cease to trouble us only when we have stripped him of his last rag of pretension and touched through to the quick of his vanity with the realization of his apprehended foolishness. Literature will have failed humanity if it is so blinded by the monstrous agony in Flanders as to miss the essential triviality at the head of the present war. Not the slaughter of ten million men can make the quality of the German Kaiser other than theatrical and silly. The greater part of the world is in an agony, a fever but that does not make the cause of that fever noble or great. A man may die of yellow fever through the bite of a mosquito, that does not make a mosquito anything more than a dirty little insect or an aggressive imperialist better than a pothouse fool. Henceforth we must recognize no heroic war but defensive war, and as the only honorable warriors such men as those peasants of vice who went out with shotguns against the multitudinous overwhelming nuisance of invasion that trampled down their fields, or war to aid such defensive war. Aye, aye. But the people who positively admire and advocate and want war for its own sake are only a small, feverish minority of mankind. The greater obstacle to the pacification of the world is not the war seeker, but the vast masses of people who for the most various motives support and maintain all kinds of institutions and separations that make for war. They do not want war. They do not like war. But they will not make sacrifices. They will not exert themselves in any way to make war difficult or impossible. It is they who give the war maniac his opportunity. They will not lock the gun away from him. They will not put a reasonable limit to the disputes into which he can ultimately thrust his violent substitute for a solution. They are like the people who dread and detest yellow fever, but oppose that putting of petrol on the ponds which is necessary to prevent it because of the injury to the water flowers. Now, it is necessary, if we are to have an intelligently directed anti-war campaign. 
that we should make a clear, sound classification of these half-heart people, these people who do not want war, but who permit it, their indecisions, their vagueness, these are the really effective barriers to our desire to end war forever, and first, there is one thing very obvious, and that is the necessity for some controlling world authority if treaties are to be respected and war abolished, while there are numerous sovereign states in the world each absolutely free to do what it chooses, to arm its people or repudiate engagements, there can be no sure peace, but great multitudes of those who sincerely desire peace forever cannot realize this, there are, for example, many old-fashioned English liberals who denounce militarism and treaty entanglements with equal order, they want Britain to stand alone, and aggressive, but free, not realizing that such an isolation is the surest encouragement to any war-enamored power, exactly the same type is to be found in the United States, and is probably even more influential there, but only by so spinning a web of treaties that all countries are linked by general obligations to mutual protection can a real-world pacification be achieved. The present alliance against the insufferable militarism of Germany may very probably be the precursor of a much wider alliance against any aggression whatever in the future. Only through some such arrangement is there any reasonable hope of a control and cessation of that constant international bickering and pressure, that rivalry in finance, that competition for influence in weak neutral countries, which has initiated all the struggles of the last century, and which is bound to accumulate tensions for fresh wars so long as it goes on. Already several states, and particularly the government of the United States of America, have signed treaties of arbitration, and the Hague Tribunal spins the first web of obligations, exemplary if gossamer, between the countries of the world, but these are but the faint initial suggestions of much greater possibilities, and it is these greater possibilities that have now to be realized if all the talk we have had about a war to end war is to bear any fruit. What is now with each week of the present struggle becoming more practicable is the setting up of a new assembly that will take the place of the various embassies and diplomatic organizations, of a medieval pattern and tradition, which have hitherto conducted international affairs. This war must end in a public settlement, to which all of the belligerents will set their hands, it will not be a bundle of treaties, but one treaty binding eight or nine or more powers. The settlement will almost certainly be attained at a conference of representatives of the various foreign offices involved. Quite possibly interested neutral powers will also send representatives. There is no reason whatever why this conference should dissolve. Why it should not become a permanent conference upon the interrelations of the participating powers and the maintenance of the peace of the world. It could have a seat and officials, a staff, and a revenue of its own. It could sit and debate openly publish the generally binding treaties between its constituent powers, and claim for the support of its decisions their military and naval resources. The predominance of the greater powers could be secured either by the representatives having multiple votes, according to the population represented, or by some sort of proportional representation. Each power could appoint its representatives through its foreign office or by whatever other means it thought fit. They could as conveniently be elected by a legislature or a nation and such a body would not only be of enormous authority in the statement, interpretation, and enforcement of treaties, but it could also discharge a hundred full functions in relation to a world hygiene, international trade and travel, the control of the ocean, the exploration and conservation of the world's supplies of raw material and food supply. It would be, in fact, a world council, 
Today this is an entirely practicable and hopeful proposal if only we can overcome the opposition of those who cling to the belief that it is possible for a country to be at the same time entirely pacific and entirely unresponsible to and detached from the rest of mankind. Given such a body, such a great alliance of world powers, much else in the direction of world pacification becomes possible. Without it we may perhaps expect a certain benefit from the improved good feeling of mankind and the salutary overthrow of the German military culture, but we cannot hope for any real organized establishment of peace. I believe that a powerful support for the assembly and continuance of such a world congress as this could be easily and rapidly developed in North and South America, in Britain and the British Empire generally, in France and Italy, in all the smaller states of Northern, Central, and Western Europe. It would probably have the personal support of the Tsar, unless he has profoundly changed the opinions with which he opened his reign, the warm accordance of educated China and Japan, and the goodwill of a renaissance Germany, it would open a new era for mankind, I, I, I. now, this idea of a Congress of the belligerents to arrange the peace settlements after this war, expanding by the accession of neutral powers into a permanent world Congress for the enforcement of international law and the maintenance of the peace of mankind is so reasonable and attractive and desirable that if it were properly explained it would probably receive the support of 19 out of every 20 intelligent persons. Nevertheless, its realization island on the whole, improbable, a mere universal disgust with war is no more likely to end war than the universal dislike for dying has ended death, and the war, unlike dying, seems to be unavoidable fate. It does not follow that its present extreme in popularity will end it unless people not only desire but see to the accomplishment of their desire, and here again one is likely to meet an active and influential opposition, though the general will and welfare may point to the future management of international relations through a world congress. The whole mass of those whose business has been the direction of international relations is likely to be either skeptical or actively hostile to such an experiment. All the foreign offices and foreign ministers the diplomatists universally, the politicians who had specialized in national assertion, and the courts that had symbolized and embodied it, all the people, in fact, who will be in control of the settlement, are likely to be against so revolutionary a change, for it would be an entirely revolutionary change, it would put an end to secrecy, it would end all that is usually understood by diplomacy, it would clear the world altogether of those private understandings and provisional secret agreements, those intrigues, wire pullings, and quasi-financial operations that have been the very substance of international relations hitherto, to these able and interested people, for the most part highly seasoned by the present conditions, finished and elaborated players at the old game, this is to propose a new, crude, difficult, and unsympathetic game, they may all of them, or most of them, hate war, but they will cling to the belief that their method of operating may now, after a new settlement, be able to prevent or palliate war, all men get set in a way of living, and it is as little in human nature to give up cheerfully in the middle of life a familiar method of dealing with things in favor of a new and untried one as it is to change one's language or emigrate to an entirely different land, I realize what this proposal means to diplomatists when I try to suppose myself united to assist in the abolition of written books and journalism in favor of the gramophone and the cinematograph or united to adopt German as my means of expression. It is only by an enormous pressure of opinion in the world behind these monarchs, ministers, and representatives that they will be induced even to consider the possibility of adapting themselves to this novel style of international dealing through a permanent Congress. 
it is only the consideration of its enormous hopefulness for the rest of the world that gives one the courage to advocate it. In the question of the possible abolition of the present diplomatic system, just as in the case of the possible abolition of war, while on the side for abolition there must be a hugely preponderating interest and a hugely preponderating majority, it island nevertheless, a dispersed interest and in an organized, miscellaneous majority, the minority island on the other hand, compact, more intensively and more immediately interested and able to resist such great changes with a maximum of efficiency, there is a tremendous need, therefore, for a World Congress organization propaganda if this advantageously posted minority is to be overcome, and from such countries as the American states in particular, and from the small liberal neutrals in Europe, whose diplomacy is least developed and least influential, liberal-minded people through the world are most disposed to expect, and do expect, a lead in this particular matter. The liberal forces in Britain, France, and Russia are extraordinarily embarrassed and enslaved by the vast belligerent necessities into which their lives have been caught, but they would take up such a lead with the utmost vigor and enthusiasm. No one who has followed the diplomatic history of the negotiations that led to this war can doubt that if there had been no secret treaties, but instead open proclamations of intentions and in open discussion of international ambitions, the world might have been saved this catastrophe. It is no condemnation of any person or country to say this. The reserves and hesitations and misconceptions that led Germany to suppose that England would wait patiently while France and Belgium were destroyed before she herself received attention were unavoidable under the existing diplomatic conditions. What reasonable people have to do now is not to recriminate over the details in the working of a system that we can now all of us perceive to be hopelessly bad, but to do our utmost in the season of opportunity to destroy the obscurities in which fresh mischief may fester for our children. Let me restate this section in slightly different words. At the end of this war there must be a Congress of Adjustment. The suggestion in this section is to make this Congress permanent, to use it as a clearinghouse of international relationships and to abolish embassies, instead of there being a British ambassador, for example, at every sufficiently important capital, and an ambassador from every important state in London, and a complex tangle of relationships, misstatements, and misconceptions arising from the ill-company ordinate activities of this double system of agents. It is proposed to send one or several ambassadors to some central point, such as the Hague, to meet there all the ambassadors of all the significant states in the world and to deal with international questions with a novel frankness in a collective meeting. This has now become a possible way of doing the world's business because of the development of the means of communication and information. The embassy in a foreign country, as a watching, remonstrating, proposing extension of its country of origin, a sort of iron finger at the heart of the host country, is now clumsy, unnecessary, inefficient, and dangerous, for most routine work, for reports of all sorts, for legal action, and so forth, on behalf of traveling nationals, the consular service is adequate, or can easily be made adequate, what remains of the ambassadorial apparatus might very well merge with the consular system and the embassy become an international court civility, a ceremonial vestige without any diplomatic value at all. I.D. Given a permanent world congress developed out of the congress of settlement between the belligerents, a world alliance, with as a last resort a call upon the forces of the associated powers, for dealing with recalcitrants. Then a great number of possibilities open out to humanity that must otherwise remain inaccessible. 
but before we go on to consider these it may be wise to point out how much more likely a world congress is to effect a satisfactory settlement at the end of this war than a congress confined to the belligerents. The war has progressed sufficiently to convince everyone that there is now no possibility of an overwhelming victory for Germany. It must end in a more or less complete defeat of the German and Turkish alliance, and in a considerable readjustment of Austrian and Turkish boundaries. Assisted by the generosity of the doomed Austrians and Turks, the Germans are fighting now to secure a voice as large as possible in the final settlement, and it is conceivable that in the end that settlement may be made quite an attractive one for Germany proper by the crowning sacrifice of suicide on the part of her two subordinated allies. There can be little doubt that Russia will gain the enormous advantage of a free opening into the Mediterranean and that the Battle of the Marne turned the fortunes of France from disaster to expansion. But the rest of the settlement is still vague and uncertain, and German imperialism, at least, is already working hard and intelligently for a favorable situation at the climax, a situation that will enable this militarized empire to emerge still strong still capable of recuperation and of a renewal at no very remote date of the struggle for European predominance. This is a thing as little for the good of the saner German people as it is for the rest of the world, but it is the only way in which militant imperialism can survive at all. The alternative of an imperialism shorn of the glamour of aggression, becoming constitutional and democratic the alternative, that is to say, of a great liberal Germany is one that will be as distasteful almost to the people who control the destinies of Germany today, and who will speak and act for Germany in the final settlement, as a complete submission to a Serbian conqueror would be, that the final conference of settlement Germany will not be really represented at all, the Prussian militarist empire will still be in existence, and it will sit at the council, working primarily for its own survival unless the Allies insist upon the presence of representatives of Saxony, Bavaria, and so forth, and demand the evidence of popular sanctions a thing they are very unlikely to demand that is what Germany will signify at the conference, and what is true of Germany will be true, more or less, of several other of the Allied powers, a conference confined purely to the belligerents will be, in fact, a conference not even representative of the belligerents, and it will be tainted with all the traditional policies aggressions, suspicions, and subterfuges that led up to the war. It will not be the end of the old game, but the readjustment of the old game, the old game which is such an abominable nuisance to the development of modern civilization. The idealism of the Great Alliance will certainly be subjected to enormous strains, and the whole energy of the Central European diplomatists will be directed to developing and utilizing these stresses. This, I think, must be manifest even to the foreign offices most concerned, they must see already ahead of them a terrible puzzle of arrangement, a puzzle their own bad traditions will certainly never permit them to solve, God save us, they may very well pray, from our own cleverness and sharp dealing, and they may even welcome the promise of an enlarged outlook that the entry of the neutral powers would bring with it, every foreign office has its ugly, evil elements, and probably every foreign office dreads those elements, there are certainly Russian fools who dream about India, German fools who dream about Canada and South America, British fools who dream about Africa and the East, aggressionists in the blood, people who can no more let nations live in peace than kleptomaniacs can keep their hands in their own pockets, but quite conceivably there are honest monarchs and sane foreign ministers very ready to snatch at the chance of swamping the evil in their own chancelleries. It is just here that the value of neutral participation will come in whatever ambitions the neutral powers may have of their own. 
it may be said generally that they are keenly interested in preventing the settlement from degenerating into a deal in points of vantage for any further aggressions in any direction. Both the United States of America and China are traditionally and incurably Pacific powers, professing and practicing in an aggressive policy, and the chief outstanding minor states are equally concerned in securing a settlement that shall settle, and moreover, so wide-reaching now are all international agreements that they had not only a claim to intervene juridically, but they had the much more pressing claim to participate on the ground that no sort of readjustment of Europe, Western Asia, and Africa can leave their own futures unaffected. They are wanted not only in the interests of the belligerent peoples, but for their own sakes and the welfare of the world altogether. The now World Conference, once it is assembled, can take up certain questions that no partial treatment can ever hope to meet. The first of the questions is disarmament. No one who has watched the politics of the last 40 years can doubt the very great share the business and finance of armament manufacture has played in bringing about the present horrible killing. And no one who has read accounts of the fighting can doubt how much this industry has enhanced the torment, cruelty, and monstrosity of war. In the old warfare a man was either stabbed, shot, or thrust through after an hour or so of excitement, and all the wounded on the field were either comfortably murdered or attended to before the dawn of the next day. One was killed by human hands, with understandable and tolerable injuries, but in this war the bulk of the dead of the Western Allies, at any rate had been killed by machinery, the wounds had been often of an inconceivable horribleness, and the fate of the wounded has been more frightful than was ever the plight of wounded in the hands of victorious savages. For days multitudes of men have been left mangled, half buried in mud and filth, or soaked with water, or frozen, crying, raving between the contending trenches. The number of men that the war, without actual physical wounds, has shattered mentally and driven insane because of its noise, its stresses, its strange and naturalness, is enormous. Horror in this war has overcome more men than did all the arrows of Cressy. Almost all this enhanced terribleness of war is due to the novel machinery of destruction that science has rendered possible. The wholesale mangling and destroying of men by implements they had never seen, without any chance of retaliation, has been its most constant feature. You cannot open a paper of any date since the war began without reading of men burned, scalded, and drowned by the bursting of torpedoes from submarines, of men falling out of the sky from shattered aeroplanes of women and children in Antwerp or Paris mutilated frightfully or torn to ribbons by aerial bombs, of men smashed and buried alive by shells, an indiscriminate, diabolical violence of explosives resulting in cruelties for the most part ineffective from the military point of view is the incessant refrain of this history. The increased dreadfulness of war due to modern weapons island however, only one consequence of their development. The practicability of aggressive war in settled countries now is entirely dependent on the use of elaborate artillery on land and warships at sea. Were there only rifles in the world, were an ordinary rifle the largest kind of gun permitted, and were ships specifically made for war not so made, then it would be impossible to invade any country defended by a patriotic and spirited population with any hopes of success because of the enormous defensive capacity of entrenched riflemen not subjected to an unhampered artillery attack. Modern war is entirely dependent upon equipment of the most costly and elaborate sort. A general agreement to reduce that equipment would not only greatly minimize the evil of any war that did break out, but it would go a long way toward the abolition of war. A community of men might be unwilling to renounce their right of fighting one another if occasion arose, but they might still be willing to agree not to carry arms or to carry arms of a not-to-lethal sort.
to carry pistols instead of rifles or sticks instead of swords, that, indeed, has been the history of social amelioration in a number of communities, it has led straight to a reduction in the number of encounters. So in the same way the powers of the world might be willing to adopt such a limitation of armaments, while still retaining the sovereign right of declaring war in certain eventualities, under the assurances of a world council threatening a general intervention, such a partial disarmament would be greatly facilitated, and another aspect of disarmament which needs to be taken up and which only a world congress can take up must be the arming of barbaric or industrially backward powers by the industrially and artillery forces in such countries as efficient powers, the creation of navies Turkey, Serbia, Peru, and the like. In Belgium countless Germans were blown to pieces by German-made guns. Europe arms Mexico against the United States, China, Africa, Arabia are full of European and American weapons. It is only the mutual jealousies of the highly organized states that permit this leakage of power. The tremendous warnings of our war should serve to temper their foolish hostilities. And now, if ever, is the time to restrain this insane arming of the less advanced communities. But before that can be done it is necessary that the manufacture of war material should cease to be a private industry and a source of profit to private individuals. That all the invention and enterprise that blossoms about business should be directed no longer to the steady improvement of man-killing. It is a preposterous and unanticipated thing that respectable British gentlemen should be directing magnificently organized masses of artisans upon the time side in the business of making weapons that may ultimately smash some of those very artisans to smithereens. At the risk of being called, Utopian, I would submit that the world is not so foolish as to allow tea, 